Last week we started in Exodus and I didn't actually start reading through the book. I just gave a character reference for Moses and we went through Psalm 103. I won't read the whole thing again. The key verses, if you want to look them up, is Psalm 103 verses 7 through 10. And basically we want to know why Moses was so different to the rest of the people and Joshua and Caleb and the two midwives. But apart from those people, and maybe Rahab who hid the spies and her family, there weren't many people who actually demonstrated faith. So Psalm 103, verses 7 through 10 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. And that's probably our key verse there for, for last week. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. They all saw the same things. They all heard the same noises. They all saw the same lightning on the hill, on the mountain, Mount Sinai, they saw everything the same. They had the same eyes, the same ears, the same touch, you know, same sensations, felt the ground shaking, all that kind of thing. But understanding came to Moses, but not to the people, or the majority of the people. And one of the big events in the book of Exodus is when God, Moses asked God to see his face. And God says, I can't do that because if I did, you'd die and my goodness would kill you, because God is perfect and we're not. And God says in the verses 8 through 10, it's basically a paraphrase of what God had said to Moses when he put his hand over him and passed by him when Moses was in the cleft of the rock. He said, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. So when we understand the heart of God, then it's much easier to follow God because we love him. If we don't understand God's heart because our hearts are hard, then we won't love him and it's going to be very difficult because it's going to be a burden. But the Bible says, and we learned last week, that God's commands are not burdensome if we love him. And the question we asked was, what is the motivation for a Christian to turn from their sins and to repent and to do what Jesus wants instead of doing what we want and having our own way? And Paul says in Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us or motivates us. And we discussed that if and concluded that if we love someone, we would do anything for them. If you're falling in love with your beautiful bride or your husband-to-be, then there's nothing too hard, you know, and there's once you fall in love and you get married, then hopefully that will continue. <laughs> so like a sports car is made for a racetrack and a bird is made to fly, a fish is made to swim and a horse is made to run. So people were created for one purpose and one purpose only, to enjoy a love relationship with God. And we went back to the garden and uh, uh, we, we examined what happened there and basically saw the effect of sin and we're going to see how God is going to deal with that problem. So, how does the book of Exodus fit in to the overall scheme of Scripture? Well, in Genesis, which we've just been through, it's all about creation. The apex or the highlight of God's creation is people, Adam and Eve. So, we are the, the reason for the creation. So, it sounds great. God said it's very good in, at the end of Genesis chapter 1 there, or chapter 2. The last verse of Genesis ends on a low and tragic note. The book that begins with creation of man in a paradise with God 
ends with a coffin in Egypt, which is a picture of the world. If it was left there, it'd be a pretty hopeless book. You wouldn't want to read it. But we come to the book of Exodus and we see God, or God looks at the condition of man and begins to work in a way that is heartwarming and mind-blowing. The book of Exodus is a book of redemption, where we see God's heart for us and that he has a plan to set us free. Exodus is a picture book of God's redemptive character, of his desire to set at liberty those who were enslaved by sin and stuck in a coffin in Egypt. And the Passover is basically a picture of that. And there's other pictures in there as well, which we'll get to. So what's changed since the end of Genesis? Well, at the end of Genesis, everything was quite rosy for them. Um, Joseph was there. He was second in charge. He was like the prime minister. Now we come to this place in where there's been some time gone by and the Israelites are not doing so well. They're now slaves. And we'll find out why. They're, they're making bricks for Pharaoh's vast building programs. Now, Exodus means the way out. It's like exit, literally, in the Greek. And it was written by Moses. And it continues the story or history of the Israelites after the death of Joseph. Now, as we did in Genesis, we looked for Christ in the book of Genesis. And we found types of Christ like Joseph and Isaac. Won't go into them now again. But in the book of Exodus, we have other types of Christ. We have Moses. We have the Passover lamb, we have the rock, and we have the tabernacle. They're just a few of the types of Christ, which we'll dig into. The chapter outline goes like this. We have the first seven chapters talking about Moses and his story. Then chapters 7 through 13 are the plagues, the ten plagues. Chapters 14 through 18 is the Exodus, where they leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea. And then chapters 19 through 24 is at Mount Sinai. It's the giving of the law. And then chapters 25 to 40 is a tabernacle and worship, all the blueprints and the instructions for building the tabernacle. So that's basically how you break up the book of Exodus. So what I'd like to do is read chapter 1. So if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, we'll read right through and then we'll um, jump in and have a look at it. So let's pray before we do that. Father, I just thank you for this awesome book, this book of redemption, Lord, with the Passover lamb being introduced to us, um, showing so clearly that you passed over us because of the blood and that we know now that the blood represents the blood of Jesus. And help us just to um, just wonder at your grace, Lord, these people who are so headstrong and so stubborn, but Lord, you are so forgiving and so patient. And we just pray that you'll help us to have your heart in us too. Help us to be forgiving and patient with those around us too. Amen. So, chapter 1, Exodus. Now these are the names of the children of Israel, who came to Egypt, each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dam, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, with hard labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? and saved the male children alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So, let's go back to verse 1. And there's 70 people, or 70 families. These names are heads of families. So they would have had kids as well, and we read about some of the kids' names in a previous chronology in Genesis. So, basically, these are just the guys. There's their wives and their kids as well. So it was actually more than 70 that went down. So why did the children of Israel go to Egypt? Why did God send them there? Well, there's two, three reasons. I'm just going to give you um, what I think. God planted his people in Egypt in order to prepare them for the land of promise. Egypt was a great incubator for Jacob's growing family, the 12 tribes. Now, why I say this is in the land of Canaan, there were no cultural boundaries to stop the people from intermarrying. So you had the nation of Israel, which is just, a you know, as it's written here, it's about 70 families with their kids. And we know from Genesis 38 that Judah had actually intermarried with some of the pagan ladies there. That was a very evil culture, and it was so evil that God had to destroy two or kill two of the sons, Ur and another one. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. But they were just evil practices. They would torture each other. They would kill the kids. They would worship all these fertility idols and all this kind of stuff. It was terrible. So God wanted to separate them from these evil people. And so the Egyptians weren't all that much better. But when they went to Egypt, they said that we are shepherds. Shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And so the Egyptian says, if you're a shepherd, you're not coming into my house and you're not taking my daughter as your wife and we don't have nothing to do with you. So that was a blessing. Okay, They wouldn't eat with them, they wouldn't associate with them. Joseph 
even when he was in a high position, he had to eat separately to the Egyptians because he was a, a Hebrew. That was God's plan for them. So the discrimination was actually a blessing. What man uses as a curse, God turns into a blessing. I mean, he's going to say that over and over again. Because if they intermarried with the people around them, it, happened, it will happen again in, in, when they get to Moab. God has to deal with them harshly there as well. Application for us, the Bible gives us a stern warning about being unequally yoked. Marriage is the obvious one, you find in 1 Corinthians 7. And also in business, even the friends that we choose, we have to be careful because, as the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. So if we hang around and find pleasure in hanging around evil people, then we'll become like them. It's like the old um, standing on a chair scenario. It's easier to pull someone down than pull someone up. So choose your friends wisely. And also the suffering they experienced served a very important purpose, and we'll come back and look at the reason why they suffered. And secondly, and probably just as important, God kept his people in Egypt to prepare the promised land for them as well. Now, Exodus 12.40 and Galatians 3.17 says it was 430 years from the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would give them the land. Now, you add the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness onto that and you get 470 years. So, God has given the Canaanites, the people who live in the land of Canaan, 470 years to repent. But they didn't. They only got worse and worse and worse. They were really, really evil. If you want to research that for yourselves, it's, um, it's, quite, it's even worse in our culture. Much worse. So, not that you can get much worse than ours, but if you think that <laughs> it was pretty bad. So basically, God is demonstrating a huge amount of patience with these people. He put two, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were there for the first 215 years of this 470-year period. They were a witness to the people. The people were given the truth. Abraham was known, Isaac was known, Jacob was known to these people. They traveled around the promised land for quite a while, for 215 years overall, before that was up to the time when Jacob went down to Egypt. But they didn't listen. They didn't repent. But the point I want to point out here is that this shows how patient God is with sinners and the lengths he will go to to give people the opportunity to repent. And uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, application for us. Are we long-suffering? Are we willing to go out of our way to witness to the lost, to evangelize, and to tell people about the judgment to come? That's God's plan for us. We are his ambassadors. Now, verse 7 says, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So, it takes us back to the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 15, and also right back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says, Be fruitful and multiply. It actually uses the same words, fruitful and multiply. So, this is a demonstration that God was blessing his people just as he had promised, 
even though the promise took a long time to come to pass. So sometimes we get impatient, but guess what? God always comes through with his promises. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So the historical setting for this is that Seti, the first is the new king or pharaoh over Egypt. And he's got a problem. He's got on his northern border, they've got Hittites. And the Hittites were an enemy. So Egypt was stronger than the Hittites, the Hittite nation. But if the Israelites joined forces with the Hittites, then Pharaoh would be in trouble. He'd have a, you know, he'd be very challenged to defend himself. He had a big military problem in his mind. Okay, so his solution was to enslave the Israelites, hoping that their enslavement would reduce the population. That's that's his goal, I believe. But the result in verse 12 is, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Isn't that awesome? The more that we suffer persecution and hard times, the more we grow. The historical reason for this affliction was the possibility of a Hittite invasion. And there's also another reason for this. All through history, Satan has been against God's chosen people. Haman sought to destroy the Jews in the book of Esther. Herod sought to destroy them at the time of Jesus' birth. Hitler has tried to destroy them in recent history. And Satan is always trying to destroy them. And here's another example. Why? Because knowing that Messiah would come from the nation of Israel... Satan is probably thinking that if he can destroy the Jewish nation, then there's no Messiah. He can mess up or thwart God's plan of redemption. So that's why I believe there's so much anti-Semitism in the world today. There's no reason to hate the Jews the way the world hates the Jews today. In addition to the historical reason, which is the Hittites, and the spiritual reason, which is the evil influence of Satan, there's also another reason, and that is we grow when we're persecuted. So I want you to think about God as your trainer, okay? Imagine you're doing weights or you're doing boxing or something like that. I'm not sure if you realize, but the only way to increase muscle strength is to break down the muscles. You need to damage the muscles first, and when they repair themselves, they're stronger than they were before. And the same thing holds true spiritually. Faith is like a muscle that needs to be worked. If I'm to grow in depth, in strength, in maturity, there's no other way than to go through testing, trial, and affliction. Therefore, when I feel like I'm breaking down, falling apart, caving in, if I listen, I'll hear the voice of the ultimate coach, Jesus, saying, Trust me, I know what I'm doing. These hard times are necessary to build your strength, to give you victory. So picture this. You're a world champion boxer, okay? Put your fists up, yeah? <laughs> All right. You're a world champion boxer. Your coach loves you and wants you to be the winner. So what does a coach do? Remember, the coach really cares for you, right? He buys you a sofa, a TV, and potato chips. You think so? I don't. All right, no. Instead, he places weights on his shoulders and resistance against his arms. 
He'll even look around for the toughest sparring partner he can find. He's going to make life difficult for this boxer in training. Now, if the boxer doesn't understand what his trainer is doing, if he doesn't have faith in his methods, he will get depressed and lose heart. But if he knows what's going on, he will rejoice in the trials because he sees, through the eyes of faith, the finished product. He's got his eyes on the finish line. For the boxer, it's in that prize fight, right? So this is why God allows us to go through hard times, even to be oppressed by the enemy. It's to make us strong. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, compared to the light of eternity, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now remember, Paul's light afflictions weren't light afflictions. They included stonings, being lost at sea for uh, three, three times and being uh, whipped many times and, and hungry and naked and thirsty, all those things. Left uh, abandoned. And we, we'd say that happened to us. Oh, the world is falling apart. Paul said, just light afflictions. <laughs> so, so remember that afflictions work for us, not against us, if we are in God's will. So how is your joy, this is our application, how is your joy when the trainer brings a resistance your way? How much faith do you have in him? The joy you have is your measuring rod to how much faith you have. Psalm 66, let's read this one together. Psalm 66, verses 10 to 12. This is the testimony of the nation of Israel. It's an amazing testimony. So Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment or rich abundance. So this is a a picture of being in Egypt, of being slaves. Caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. It's like a picture of intense suffering, intense bondage, rigor, hard work. But you brought us out to rich fulfillment. So God takes us through the fires of persecution, tribulation and temptation to purify us, not to burn us. He takes us through the water to cleanse us, not to drown us. Remember, it feels like we're burning up, but that's not what God is doing. He's actually purifying us. It feels like we're drowning, but he's not. We're being cleansed. If you could look up Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 to 15. And the reason we're spending time in here is we're going to see this is exactly what the children of Israel didn't do. Overall, they did not learn from their trials. They went through the trials. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 to 15. So this is the reason God chastens his children. It says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's for our profit, so we can partake of his holiness, No one enjoys 
trials, but we get the fruit of righteousness for those if we allow ourselves to be trained by it. Verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. They did not pursue peace with all people. They did not pursue holiness. And because of that, they didn't see the Lord with their spiritual eyes. They fell short of the grace of God. And they had that root of bitterness causing much trouble and many people were defiled. So this is a quote from Ray Comfort on this passage. Uh, In other words, get it together. Don't fall into discouragement, which is essentially a lack of faith in God. If you let your arms hang down in unnecessary depression instead of rejoicing that God is working all things out for your good, you are saying that God isn't faithful, that his promises aren't worth believing, that he is actually a liar. There is no greater insult to God than not to believe his promises. The result of unbelief will be unnecessary depression, discouragement, self-pity, resentment, then bitterness, which will end up spreading to others. If you have never thanked God for his promises, for his faithfulness, for the fact that he is working with you, in you, and for you, if you have been joyless or even despised what has been happening to you and moved into bitterness, then repent of the sin of mistrust. How insulted would you be if you were a faithful and loving trainer and your boxer, for whose good you are laboring, began to despise you for what you were doing? On the other hand, if you are willing to be trained, the result will be the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, you will end up living a life that is complete righteousness and bring a smile to the heart of your Heavenly Father. So again, children of Israel had glimpses of joy, glimpses of happiness. Oh, we're leaving Egypt. Yay! What what happened as soon as it got out? I started complaining, whining, murmuring. Oh, there's no water out here. The food's not very good. Accommodation's not very nice. I want to go back. (laughs) And they became bitter. They didn't understand God's ways, his heart, his motive. They thought, oh, God's freed me. So now we're going to instantly go into this beautiful place and we're going to have nice houses and we just sit back and God's going to reward us for all the hard work that he's... No, they went into a desert. (laughs) So they didn't understand God's character, his motive, and they failed to reap the fruit of righteousness. And for me, it's a tragedy, and I've done it myself. I'm the first to admit this. I've gone through trials and not gained from them because I haven't had the faith, I haven't had the the spiritual vision to see that this is God working in me. This is God working for me. This is God working to change me, to become more righteous, to become more holy. Someone said, This growth in the face of affliction has constantly or consistently been the story of God's people. Throughout all ages, the more they are afflicted, the more they grow. As the ancient Christian writer Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Someone else said, suffering and persecution are like a great wave that comes upon a ship and looks as if it will destroy it, but the ship catches the wave and just uses it to speed along. It's a good image, eh? Being in a big ocean... 
and the waves are coming, I think you've got to come on top. All you do is you catch a wave, you're off. So you can use the power of that wave to move along. So second part of verse 12, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in water, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So, literally, the Egyptians cracked the whip on the Israelites. There's a famous wall painting on an ancient tomb from Thebes in Egypt. Um, It's modern Luxor, if you know the geography. I don't. The tomb of the overseer of brick-making slaves during the reign of Thutmose III. I think that's how you say his name. T-H-U-T-M-O-S-E. The painting shows such overseers armed with heavy whips. Their rank is denoted by the long staff held in their hands and the Egyptian hieroglyphic determinative of the head and neck of a giraffe. So basically, because God's purpose was to bless Israel and to fulfill his role for them in his eternal plan, no amount of affliction could defeat his purpose. God is doing a work of sanctification in us. The Egyptians tried their best through cruel slavery, but it did not work. The principle in Isaiah 54.17 proved true. You remember that one? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. The wickedness of the Egyptians could hurt the children of Israel, but they could never defeat God's plan for them. Another quote. In the midst of their cruel and harsh service, life must have seemed hopeless to the children of Israel, and the idea that God was working out his plan must have seemed very far away. Yet it was true, nonetheless. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So basically execute the male babies. Sound familiar? Herod? No? Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now, Romans 31 to 5 says, the authorities are placed there by God and we should obey them. We should submit to them. However, if you look at Peter and John in Acts 5.29, after they were beaten, they were told, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? That's right. They said they were to obey God rather than to obey man. So the injunction or the, the command is clear. Yes, we are to submit to those in authority over us, realizing it is God who placed them in their position. Even if they don't want to do good for us, God will use their evil for good, like Joseph said. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So God knows what he's doing. We trust him. But when their commands clearly violate the word of God, then like Peter and John, we are to obey God rather than men. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. By the time we show up, the baby is already born. <laughs> you know, they're gone. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, this is, this is my opinion, but it's probably partially true. I reckon the Hebrew women, because God has blessing them with lots and lots of kids, 
were most likely stronger and more healthy than their Egyptian counterparts. And I've heard of um, Asian women like working in the field and that, having their baby and just keep going. Maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they're completely telling the truth. But if they were lying, maybe there were some um, Hebrew women who did have problems. Would it have been right to murder that male child? So I've heard it referred to as the law of life, where, for example, Rahab hid the spies. That's another example of lying. Okay, and Rahab was honoured by God for her faith. People, even today, are being honoured by, well, not by God um, directly, but you know, they're being honoured today in the Israeli um, Holocaust Museum for saving the lives of Jews uh, during the um, Holocaust, you know, those war years. In these situations, you know, I'm not saying that lying is right, but if they did lie, they would have been helping evil men kill innocent people, which is wrong. So the greater good was to, to lie and to protect the lives of those innocent people. So Exodus 1 verse 20, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Now, in their culture, the midwives were the barren women. God blessed these midwives and gave them children of their own. If we honor God, he will honor us. Matthew nineteen twenty nine says, And anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. We can never outgive God. And then verse 22, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So for the last few years there, there would have been some baby boys killed. But in chapter 2, we again see a woman who doesn't do that. We'll find out about that next week. So that's um, obviously the birth of Moses. So for now, um, the main point from today was when we go through affliction, it's designed to make us stronger. And when we have the spiritual foresight or spiritual vision that Oh, God is doing this for my good. And we hold on to that promise in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and according, according to his purposes. Then it's okay. I know that God has got this in control. It's like the runner who's been going through excruciating pain, you know, pushing himself, pushing himself to get a faster time of the boxer training. You know, people are willing to go through physical pain to get a physical medal. Well, are we willing to go through physical, emotional, and spiritual pain so we can grow spiritually? And that's God's desire for us. And unfortunately, that's the way it happens. Jesus learnt obedience through the things he suffered too. So we're following his example. It's not like he's saying, I'm going to cause you to suffer so you can grow. No, he said, this is how I grew. If you want to be like me, you have to go through the same things. So Jesus is the example. We follow him. He's not someone who tells us to do something he hasn't done before. He is our leader. He is our example. And we, we too learn obedience through the things we suffer. We learn righteousness. Father, thank you for, Lord, these scriptures who show, uh, where they show so clearly that uh, where persecution arises, Lord, no matter what plans men have, evil men have, um, like Joseph's brothers, um, Joseph said, to them at the end of Genesis. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we can trust you, Lord, that no matter what happens in a workplace, what happens um, if you have an accident in the car, or if someone gets sick, or if someone dies, or if 
whatever happens, Lord, the house burns down. Lord, we know that you're in control and we know that you're working in us. And we know it's not going to feel good. It's not going to, we're not going to enjoy it. But Lord, our joy is not found in external circumstances. Our joy is found in love relationship with you. And nothing can touch that love relationship with you. That is between you and me or you and us. And we develop that with you and we nurture that and we protect that. And Lord, those trials just push us closer to you. And uh, like the three friends in the um, fiery furnace, there was a, the, Jesus, you were with them there too, one like the Son of Man. And uh, Lord, we just long for that, the deeper intimacy with you. And Lord, if trials are the way to go or the only way to achieve that, then I'm willing to go through those trials. And I'll do it joyfully because I know the end is a closer relationship with you and I'll be more like your son, Jesus. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.